This is an ABC podcast. The writer Henry James rather adored Venice. But he saw the island city, as so many do, as a, a coruscated, otherworldly spectacle, a, a glittering projection of desire, a romantic, baroque, Byzantine, Gothic, Renaissance fantasy, as he wrote. As you sit in your gondola, the footways that in certain parts edge the canals assume to the eye the importance of a stage, and the Venetian figures moving to and fro strike you as members of an endless dramatic troupe. Trouble is, Venice is real, and that reality is threatened, in part by the enthusiasm so many millions have for their fantasy version of it. Venice. It's not what you think it is. Attention, passengers. Jonathan Green, this is Return Ticket, the podcast that transports you to far-flung places, both familiar and unexpected, taking travel off the beaten track. In this series, uh, we'll see where the rubber hits the road in Kuala Lumpur, ask that eternal question, why is Tasmania so terrible, and count the odds in Las Vegas. But now, we're looking for the real in that ultimate fantasy kingdom, Venice. Grazie mille, signore. Arrivederci. Oh, wow. Wow, would you look at that? I'm sure Venice is, is one of the few places on the planet that it consistently leaves you agog. It, it leaves its visitors in awe. Hmm, <laughs> they don't tell you about the pong of this place in summer. Uh, it's busy. Chocker block, and, and I, I can just see the ornate streetscape uh, behind the, these pulsing tourist crowds. I've just disembarked from that, that gondola, and I'm, I'm facing oh, it's Venice's ceremonial front door. It's a, it's a few minutes away from St Mark's Square. And flanking me are two classical columns carrying the, the patron saints of Venice, St Mark, a winged lion, and St Tadaro, the protector of Venice before St Mark came along. Now, Tadaro, I think, has, has seen better days. He's, he's got the body of a Roman soldier with an ancient Greek head and, and spearing what, what's supposed to be a dragon. In reality, that, that dragon, well, looks like some plush dinosaur toy. But through the columns, the, well, there's the Venice that, that's replicated in classical painting today. Still, the, the, the sun's dripping through the clouds. The rays are dancing around the masonry and the light bounces off the water. And I can see why, why generations of people have wanted to start their Venetian fantasy right here. But the original, it wasn't supposed to be a romantic idyll. Instead... All of this was designed to display the power and wealth of the Venetian Republic's old rulers, the all-powerful Medici clan. It's a language of power, dripping in classical architectural geometry, Gothic windows, Corinthian columns. And this is synthesised in the, in the Doja Palace, in the Palazzo Ducale, 
in Italian, uh, the seat of the former Republic's rulers. It's where I'm headed right now. I'm going to meet Max Holleran. He's an Australian academic uh, who's spent a lot of time thinking about how cities manage tourism. He's going to help me understand how Venice went from being a city of trade to a city of visitors. Yeah, you have to excuse me. I, I just need to... Max! I, 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 Max! I need to spot him amongst these throngs. Hmm, is that him? Max, Max, where are you? Max! Hey! Oh, Miscusi! Max! Ah, there he is. Max, hi! <laughs> what a what a wonderful place is it? This this is the core of, of, of touristic Venice. But just how, how important was Venice? Take us back to that as a, as a European trading power back into the Middle Ages. Well, when you look at the Italian Renaissance in places like Venice, they were generators of enormous wealth. I think that oftentimes we think about this as a kind of mercantile wealth and people making money from trade. That's true on one hand. On the other hand, this is sort of the birthplace of capitalism because what was going on here wasn't just ships bringing luxury goods all over Europe. It was also ships using new economic devices, new forms of insurance, new forms of banking to get a kind of global economy started. And the people who were involved in that, people like the Medicis, became enormously wealthy. And they built these display palaces like the Palazzo Ducale to show their wealth and power. And this would be a really arresting sight uh, when compared to the more austere architecture of the rest of Europe. Um, although, you know, looking at a place like Venice, it's a, it's a height of sort of a very nouveau riche period that is very loud. Yes, it's, it's, it's sort of a feast of, of bad Renaissance taste, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I think that today we think, oh, look at this place, it's so beautiful. But there was definitely people when the Palazzo Ducale uh, was being built who must have said, God, that is so over the top. I can't believe they're building this monstrosity. Um, it's got a stone foundation and then it's got these white marble galleries and on top of that it's got this facade with, you know, diamonds and pink marble. And there, there's a bit of a kind of Donald Trump uh, cringe for people um, who must have been seeing this as a real ostentatious display of wealth. Um, but, you know, we've, we've come to accept it and many of us have come to love it. Is that Venice or Versace? <laughs> <laughs> Around the early 19th century, Venice is looking for options economically. Yeah, so Venice has shrunk a lot. In, in some ways, it's actually blessed by not having a lot of development in the interim between the 1500s and the 19th century, because that's what preserves it as we see it now. If it had become, you know, a big industrial powerhouse mm. or ha had a, a lot of growth, we wouldn't have the beautiful canals. We wouldn't have these palazzos still as they are, but it's it's rediscovered by tourism and it's, it's very much romanticized. So Venice has always had a sort of romantic appeal for people who, who see it as both beautiful but slightly decrepit. So when you think about, you know, Thomas Mann's famous novel, Death in Venice, written before the First World War, there's already the main character, Gustav mm. von Aschenbach, who's lamenting the kind of mass tourism and, and, you know, yearning for this previous era of more bohemian tourism. So I think there's always people who are trying to reinvent the city as something that is not just for the kind of, like, big 
tourism groups, but it's for them in a more personal way and for them in a kind of meditative sense. So here we have this this sort of Renaissance Disney world, frozen in time. Has that become in some way a burden for the city? I think it has. The city has to spend a lot of money just to maintain a place that is pretty much one big open-air museum. It houses foreigners. It's mainly hotels and restaurants. And actual residents are very much off of the major island. So they're in Maestre. It's the kind of center of the population. And then there's also some industrial areas to the south, a port uh, Marguera, which is a petrochemical port. And, you know, you look at the city of Venice and it's a quarter of a million people, but it's only about 50, 60,000 in the historic center. So it's, it's really being kept as a kind of giant theme park. However, that theme park is very economically important. So it'd be hard to give up the two and a half billion euros that it generates every year. You know, the locals have been dealing with tourists for 200 years. The city is overwhelmed. But I think that the real question now isn't, no one's saying, oh, I want to go back into the old city and live there. They're saying, I want to take my family. We're Venetians. I want to go there on the weekend and actually be able to walk somewhere and not fall into the canal because there's so many people. Um, it's just, it's, it's almost a kind of national question of, can we even enjoy our own patrimony? There's almost something tragic in that. Absolutely. I mean, I think people want control over their beautiful national places. And there's, there's sometimes a feeling of over-tourism where they've lost control. And it's hard not to be able to show your children one of the most beautiful places in your country, not to be able to hear your language spoken on the streets. And I think that also the kind of crush of people in Venice, the kind of, you know, constantly having to go through people's photos, constantly having to battle a forest of selfie sticks, that's, that's really difficult for people. And I think that makes for an experience that can be much more enervating than it is pleasurable. Max, thank you. What a... What a complex history in, in such a beautiful place. But I, I, I must leave you now. I have a date with the lagoon. Grazie. I've left the throbbing tourist centre of Venice now. I'm in the city's quieter residential back streets, or should I say, back canals. Now, when you look at the stats on paper, well, Venice should be a, a sleepy town. As Max mentioned, its historic centre is, is a tiny city, a place smaller than most regional towns. But unlike those places, Venice swells with millions of tourists annually. Maybe 10 to 20 million people, depending on your preferred metric. And this has a profound impact on the thing that, that keeps Venice functioning. The Venetian Lagoon. It's the largest wetland in the Mediterranean basin. And it's made up of mudflats, tidal shallows, salt marshes. And it's one that has been carefully managed by humans for millennia. Well, and until now. Today it's it's a threatened waterway. It's suffering over tourism, erosion, climate change. Now, I'm about to meet Jane DeMosto, who's the perfect person to help me find out more about the lagoon as it is today. She's an environmental scientist, and she spent years advocating for the lagoon's health. And she's one of many migrants to the city who wants to keep Venice a living city, not just a showpiece. 
I think, yes, I think this is her place, just coming up here. Jane, thank you for having me in your home. This, this is such a wonderful place. Well, it's really wonderful that you've come to visit. Thank you for coming all this way. Oh, an absolute pleasure, and to be here amongst such beauty. Tell me about the lagoon. Yes, I feel I need to do that because so many people that come to Venice just see the palaces, Piazza San Marco. You know, of course, the streets are filled with water, the canals, but they forget that actually Venice is a group of islands in the middle of a very large lagoon system. It's 550 kilometers squared. You know, a lagoon is where the rivers and the sea come together. And um, there's huge expanses of what might seem like open water. In some cases, it is open water. In other cases, it's just a thin layer of water above a very complicated and precious, highly biodiverse coastal wetland system. And that's really what the well-being of Venice depends on. And it's also incredibly complicated because over two millennia, that's 2,000 years, the humans who've settled in Venice have been constantly intervening to influence the natural dynamics of the lagoon system to favour their lives in Venice. You say that it is still richly biodiverse, which in in itself is something of a miracle. The position and the shape and size of the Venice lagoon means that it's an important stopping off point for birds that are migrating from the northern to the southern hemisphere. It has a lot of birds that just breed here and it has a huge amount of birds that live here all the time. But of course the life of the birds is associated also with an incredibly complex network of invertebrates, of fish, of plants, of all kinds of things. The waters that that flow through Venice in in those canals, the the balance there between fresh and and salt? That's a very good question because actually the um, saltiness of the water in the canals are actually just about as salty as the water in the Adriatic Sea now. And that's because the lagoon is in an unstable state even though I talked about millennia of interaction with humans, the lagoon is now showing more and more marine features rather than coastal and freshwater features because erosion caused by the shipping channel, caused by intense ship and boat traffic has taken away a lot of the sediments from the lagoon, making the water deeper, making the volumes of water exchanged with the sea every tide much greater, which means, you know, more and more salt water. And the saltiness of the water obviously affects the stability of the buildings because the water permeates into the walls, into the structure of the buildings. I guess the amazing thing is, Jane, with with that history that you've described, that the the lagoon and, and Venice itself is... 
Well, it's still standing and that there is still, you know, an effective ecosystem there, even though one under great stress and pressure. Exactly. That That's why I'm here. That's why we're, we're working so hard on the things we do, because Venice not only is so marvellous and beautiful, but it also is extremely resilient. And that's why we have hope because um, we're still in time to save it. Jane, thank you. What, what a lovely point to end our conversation. I have learned a lot. And thank you. Thank you for having me in your home. Thank you. Have a nice rest of the day. to grab a quick bite, like one of those famed Venetian dishes, like a, a risotto cooked with cuttlefish ink. But I, I just couldn't bear the queues. Everything's just heaving with people here, queue after queue. So I, I've done the, the next best thing. I've left Venice. Surely there's going to be good food at my next stop. I've hopped on a water taxi uh, known as a Vaporetto and I'm, I'm heading to an island called Torcello. It's a sparsely populated island out there in the Venetian lagoon about an hour by boat northeast of historic Venice. It's an island that appears lost to time. Now it's this island which is believed to hold the key to Venice's origins and when I get there I'm going to meet an Italian academic Diego Calaon. He's got a dream job. He's an archaeologist researching early Venice. This is the place before the tourists, <laughs> even before the rich Medici traders. The time after the fall of the Roman Empire and before the rise of the city-states. Back then, well, Venice would have been a sleepy backwater. It's anything but that now. Though I can't say the same for Torcello. The only major structure left on it is a, is a Byzantine church, a complex that dates back to 639 AD, the Basilica Santa Maria Assunta. I can see oh, the basilica's weathered shell. At Diego, he's, he's waiting for me in there. Diego, thank, thanks for meeting me here. Hi, welcome, welcome in Torcello. Torcello, tell me about this place and, and, and why it's important to your work as, a, as an archaeologist. Yeah, it is an amazing place. You see, we can say that in somehow Torcello is the cradle of Venice, or better, it has been depicted as the cradle of Venice. It is the place where all the legends about the region of the cities uh, take action. And so when we refer to these uh, quite desert island, you can see that uh, there are this big church uh, in the landscape uh, and nothing else, uh, nothing much more. And so only this old church brings uh, the memory of the early Venetian that they uh, rescued themselves here according to the myth uh, to save their lives from the barbarians that they were destroying the Roman Empire. How long ago did people first come here? 
it is said it will be the fifth century with the Huns. But the archaeological work that we are doing here are quite completely reversing the history. And we can tell that the uh, first inhabitants of the lagoons were here much before the Roman times. So even in that period, this was Torcello was a, a big trading focal point. It was the most uh, important trading post. And uh, it remains up to 11th centuries when the role uh, was taken by uh, Venice itself. We can say that in the early medieval time there were a lot of Torcello or a lot of Venice. And then at the end Venice won and became the main harbour in the area. We know what Venice looks like now as a, as a city of the Renaissance, but in, in the Middle Ages, what, what was being built in Venice? How did it look? Almost everything was timber-made, houses, piers, um, warehouses, but also artisanal infrastructure. The only buildings uh, built with bricks and stone were the churches, and those uh, stones and, uh, and bricks were taken from the Roman cities nearby. Timber City was perfect for living in a uh, environment like that with water because every 30 40 years so every generation you readapt to the changing environment around you so when did when did the venice that we now know when did when and how did that become sort of frozen in time uh, this is a very interesting question. We can say that the first uh, brick and stone building started here between the 12th and 13th century, mostly due to fire reasons. So we have accounts, but also archaeological evidences, that more than half of the city, three or four times, was completely burned down. Mm. But still, at that time, in the medieval times, buildings were changing quite often. We can say that the image, the frozen image that we have to Venice, start really at the end of Venice, in the Romantic period, when we start to think as global citizens that this is something that needs to be preserved like it was. So the true Venice is, is a changing, eclectic place. We can say absolutely yes. The uh, essence of Venice is a changing model. Uh, we know from the accounts of the travelers in the Middle Age and the early Renaissance time that Venice was a wonder, but exactly for these things, a wonder where the new things were about to happen. And somehow Venice was one of these uh, modern contemporary centers in the past, like New York or Dubai today, uh, if we want to make a comparison. And now we have frozen it. It is uh, something in the past, but which past is a big question. I wonder if one day that will happen to Dubai. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Diego, thank you. And, and thank you for showing me Torcello, this, this cradle of Venice, a, a magical place. Thank you. Thank you to you. See you again. I've decided to, to stay on the Basilica grounds just, just a little while longer. There's, well, there's, there's a lot of thoughts to process from this trip. As I look around me, well, long gone are the, the parishioners, uh, the working men and women of the cloth, the regular visitors here, and, and the birds who nest in the roof. In a way, this, this building is a harbinger of, of what Venice could become, 
a place lost to time, a genuine museum piece. And Venice is vulnerable to this future. A, a city burdened by fame, a city straining against the fantasy we have of it. But it's a real place of real people set in a complex ecology. It's a fascinating test case of a simple reality asserting itself under extreme pressure against a burden of expectation. The expectation that it should stay frozen in tourist-friendly time. But Venice is an island in an intricate, delicate chain of wetland spaces and a place of a, a vibrant, dynamic and fascinating history of art and living culture and a, a place beloved of the 50,000 or so who call it home. It's many things, but almost certainly it's not what you think. You've been listening to Return Ticket, this time from Venice. You heard from Max Holleran, Jane DeMosto and Diego Calaon. Producers are Haley Crane and Alan Whedon. Technical production and musical theme, Brendan O'Neill. Executive producer is Rhiannon Brown. And tell your friends how much you enjoyed it. Till next time, I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.